Take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. I've got an hour. Nobody laughed at that. I'm just kidding. I mean, really, honestly, I don't know. Let me just say thank you because this has been, I have preached through this book. This book was the first defense I wrote in seminary. My first 25-page paper was a defense paper on the book of Hebrews and its connection to Psalm 110. I love the book of Hebrews, but I honestly have been humbled going back through it again. Many different ways. One, because of how rich and how thick it is. But let me tell you what else it reminded me of. I think all of you know that when when they wrote books of the Bible, they didn't go 12.1, write a sentence and go two. They introduced those numbers later. They wrote a book, and they wrote the book of Hebrews, just like you'd read a book. It didn't have numbers and chapters and those kind of markers. Reading back through it again convicted me of how much we need each other in our faith walks. You need the person sitting next to you as much as the person next to you needs you. Your seat is important. And when you look around you, there are gaps in those seats. And you know what? We, we, there are people that need those gaps. They need to come and sit in those places. And reading this book, studying this book, digesting this book has reminded me again, we are the body of Christ and we need each other. To make that happen. Now, I'm going to ask you to buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> Joe is laughing at me now. I mean, because when I went in, the, in, our, in our early service, I went through this message and I went, oh my gosh, I've got so much that I want to say, but I want to say what I need to say succinctly today. In your study guide, if you picked up one as you walked in, if you're joining us online, I'm going to try to walk, uh, talk you through this. But if you remember when we started this study, we started by talking about that there are five warning statements in the book of Hebrews. We studied the first one in chapter two, where it said to pay attention, don't drift away like a boat that's not tied to the dock. If you're not paying attention, you will drift away because you're not listening to the message that Jesus brought that was better than the message the angels brought. When we got into chapter three, we heard the, uh, the, the warning to, to believe, don't doubt. All of us come to seasons where things happen where we begin to doubt what God's doing or what God has said. But he was saying at that moment, believe. It's not like the Israelites who got to the promised land and decided, no, I don't trust you, Lord. And then we got to the warning that's at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 where he says, you've become dull of hearing and you need to mature. And so he was warning them, hey, listen, don't just shut your ears off. Listen and grow in your faith. And then Fred shared with us a few weeks ago the fourth warning, which he, he gave us three commands. But then he said, listen, don't fall back into sin. Hold fast this commitment that you have to Christ. And so this week we're going to the fifth warning. But to, in order to set this up, I, I want to talk about the word refuse because you're going to see that right off the bat in the text. And actually, I, I, Micah, I need you to hand me uh, that object that's in the floor right there if you don't mind. Thank you. Now, most of you know what this is, and don't worry, I'm not going to try to put this, put this on and pull a Chris Farley and fat guy in a little coat. That's not what I'm going to do. But y'all know what this is, right? I mean, all of us 
at this stage of life in the 21st century know that this is, this is a life vest, right? Well, when I talk about the word refuse, the word refuse has levels of strength. For example, if you came up and said, hey, let me hand you a mint because your breath stinks. Now, you wouldn't say that. But I could say, no, thank you. I don't want that mint. Or maybe, you know, you're sitting there and your phone rings and you can't take the call. So you refuse the call. You, you kind of shut that ringer off. Or maybe let's make it a little stronger. You go to the car lot and you want to buy this car. Salesman comes in and gives you this astronomical amount of, that they're asking for the car. And you go, you know what? I, I'm sorry. I can't. You refuse the offer. Or maybe you're like, uh, maybe, maybe you go through the motions. You haven't necessarily verbally refused something, but in your actions you do. Kind of like summer. Oh, not summertime, but summer in Napoleon Dynamite who agrees to go to prom when Napoleon puts the dress on, gets in the car, goes to the prom, and walks away from him as soon as she gets to the door. That was a refusal. You know, you've, all good movies, especially Hallmark, are based on refusals, right? But what about when a refusal becomes deadly? On May 7th, 1915, the RMS Lusitania, a British ocean liner, was struck by a torpedo by a German sub. The ship sank in a matter of minutes, and it killed 1,198 of the 1,959 passengers. A good number of them, right? Over half the people died that day in that, because of that sunken ship. But a lady by the name of Diana Preston wrote a book recording the observations of one of the passengers named Charles. And Charles says this, he says, as the ship was sinking... And as Charles was looking around to see who needed a life jacket. Now, this is the early 1900s. People didn't have bass boats back then. They may not have known what this was or probably had never worn one. But he says he noticed that the crowds were pouring onto the deck. Nearly everyone who passed him that day was wearing a life jacket and they had it on incorrectly. In his panic, one man had thrust his arm through one of the armholes and was probably wearing it like this. Another had put their head through the armhole. Someone had put it through their leg and was kind of straddling it like this. Here was the problem. No one had read the little neat sign around the ship telling them how to put this on properly. Charles was pleading with people and some thought he was just trying to take their life jacket from them. He continues, dead and drowning people now begin to pepper the, the sea like seagulls. Many bodies were floating upside down because people had put their life jacket on the wrong way up so that their head actually got pushed over. Because they refused to pay attention. They refused to believe the warning. They refused to listen and had become dull and they refused to comply. And they didn't put the life jacket on properly. You see, this thing wouldn't save my life because it doesn't even fit. The author of Hebrews was strategic in the way that he laid out these warnings. Pay attention, believe, listen and comply and now we're at this fourth warning and I have the question today for you that I want you to wrestle out today 
I want this question to stick in your mind and it not leave you until you come to an answer. What is it that God expects from you and me? What is it that God wants from each one of us today? Because in our sinful nature, what do we have to offer him? Do you know what God wants? He wants your heart. He wants your heart. Because if he can get your heart, he gets what motivates you. If he can get your heart, he gets what moves you. If he gets your heart, he gets your obedience. If he gets your heart, he gets your faithfulness, your loyalty. But when we refuse Jesus Christ, when we do not heed the warnings up to this point, when we choose not to listen, when we choose not to respond to what we've heard, then there's nothing left but judgment. Isaiah said it best when he said, because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with lip service, but they remove their heart from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by repetition. God's not concerned about your liturgy. He's not concerned about our order of service. God wants your heart. Because all of us in here today, we can sing the right songs. We can pray the prayers. We can dress the part. We can, we can have, if you like me, I want, I want as many Bibles as I can collect. But I can read this Bible and my heart be removed from it. God wants your heart. In chapter 12, last week we talked about focusing and fixing our faith on Christ on that better promise, that better resurrection. It doesn't get any better than that. But following that in chapter four, he begins to talk about how God the Father disciplines, say discipline, disciplines his children. When I was growing up, my dad had a belt and on his belt was stamped the word mouse because he was a truck driver. That was his CB handle. That's what they called him on the radio. Well, that's actually what crossed our backside. Because I remember the last spanking I got from my dad. My dad, who was over six foot tall and could pick me up one-armed. I remember my last spanking. But I'm going to tell you what, he didn't spare the rod. He disciplined us. And there's a reason why I can remember my last spanking, because I strove not to get another one. God disciplines, his, disciplines us, and for some of us in the room, we always think that we're the divine victim when bad things happen to us, and the author's trying to say, look, that bad stuff happening to you maybe because God's trying to get your attention and put you right back on the path. So stop blaming the devil for all the things that's happening to you and start looking inward before you look outward. And so then he gives some practical instruction, such as saying, be at peace with people and pursue holiness and strengthen the weak and stand, listen, church, stand against bitterness and division. Why? Because we're one body. I think it's interesting because in chapter 12, he begins to talk about two mountains. And these two mountains are from the Old Testament. One was Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, there's this, there's this terrific scene. It's, it actually, when you, when you read it, it's, it, it's scary. Because God tells Moses, look, I want you to put a boundary around the foot of Mount Sinai. Because you're going to come up and meet with me, but nobody else can come. In fact, if anyone, if any animal touches this mountain, put them to death. And then, and then God shows up 
And it's like a volcano erupting and there's thunder and there's, there's earthquakes. It's a terrible, as the Bible calls it, a terrible sight. It was scary. The God of judgment of the Old Testament stood the way he stood because he was a holy God. And he still is a holy God. But then he talks about Mount Sinai. I mean, excuse me, Mount, uh, Mount Zion, which is the mount upon which the temple was built. And to the old covenant, that temple meant the place where people could come and meet with God. But there was only one person who could enter the presence of God. Who was that? The high priest. Well, Jesus is the ultimate high priest who now sits in the very presence of God and has brought us along. And so therefore, this mountain represents that we have a place we can come to. As the writer said in 416, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. That same holy God is now saying, come on, there is no boundary. Jesus broke the boundary. He made us holy so we could come to the mountain. And that's where we are today. So stand with me as we read these four verses at the end of chapter 12. And to sadden my heart, close out our study in the book of Hebrews. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That has been the theme of this entire book. It's like your mama grabbed you by the jaws and said, look at me and eyeball to eyeball, I'm telling you something to listen. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Who are the those there? The those of Exodus 19. The ones that refused to listen, because you got to remember while Moses was gone, they decided to build a golden calf. And his voice, talking about God, shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yet once more, I won't shake only the earth, but I will shake heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken will remain. The eternal things will remain. Then he gives this command. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom... We haven't heard that word since 1-8. We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Why? Because who built that kingdom? God did. It's God's kingdom. Then what do we do? Let us show gratitude. Literally, it says, let us have grace. By which we may offer to God an acceptable service. The only two people up to this point that have been referred to as offering anything has been priests and Jesus. And now we're invited to offer something. What? Our gratitude and our service with reverence and awe. And one of my favorite verses, because I told you last week, I love third day, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, as we sang at the beginning of this service, let our words be few. Let our words be few because we stand in awe of who you are. Let your words speak louder than anything that I will ever say and minister to our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me take a few minutes and in fast forward motion walk you through this idea that your heart needs to change. 
Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 30, verse six, after he promised that they would break the old covenant, go into, um, go into exile and come back. And he says to them this, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Circumcision brings to remembrance that when God made his covenant with Abraham, he said, I want you to circumcise all the male children. It was a mark of the Abrahamic covenant that God would bless the world through Abraham, giving him land and giving him people. But why did he say he wanted to circumcise our heart? Because our heart is the center of our volition. So he says, why do this? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, God's goal is to have your heart. He says in the new covenant, the promise of that new covenant, we've already studied Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. We have a heart of stone and stone can't beat. So he says, I'm going to give you a new heart and put my spirit in you so that it will cause you to obey my commands. Or we see in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with your whole heart. But my heart is sinful. I'm not looking after God. I'm not seeking for him. I need my heart to change. God knew that for us to glorify him with our allegiance and our obedience, we need something new. And in order to approach God, we needed to be made holy. That's why David wrote in Psalm 24, three through five, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood or sworn deceitfully, he will receive a blessing for the Lord. What is that blessing? Righteousness from God of his salvation. You and I are desperately bankrupt. We don't have the righteousness necessary, the holiness necessary to enter God's presence. So Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross to extend to you and me his righteousness so that we could enter the presence of the Lord and ascend his hill. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, you want to come to Mount Zion and God's giving you that opportunity through Christ alone. The condition and the position of your heart matters because in 412 we read that the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. He wants your heart. And with your heart, he wants us to approach him. And here's this word, reverently. He wants us to come to him with reverence, a holy fear that this God of Mount Zion, Sinai, who is still that God, that God who can speak and shake the entire earth is the God now that's inviting us to approach his holy hill through Jesus Christ. And he wants us to approach him with reverence. And so in this passage, I believe that there are are four actions, I think they're progressive, that allows us to enter into a place of reverence. So point number one, we listen. Say listen. Because that of heaven is greater than that of earth. Why? Why is that of heaven greater than that of earth? Because that's where God is. Now I know that the Holy Spirit indwells believers that his Holy Spirit is here with us. But he's talking about eternal things. 
things that supersede the matter of which we are surrounded by day in and day out, supersedes anything that I can ever go through. He says, see to it, that's in the imperative, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. I can, I can get on the ship and I can nod. Remember when we started this study, I talked about how when you go to the beach, you see the warnings about riptides. I think it was the next week, there were more articles that came out early in June of people dying because of riptides, rip currents, not heeding the warning. And today he's saying, don't refuse him who is speaking. I don't know any other way that I can come to you except on my own knees and beg you that God is speaking to you. And if you're hardening your heart today and saying, no, I can't buy into that stuff. No, it makes no sense. I'm begging you on my own knees. Would you listen to the God of heaven who is pleading with you to repent of your sin and come to the God of heaven who took his own son and put him on a cross, bore the wrath of God so that you might be saved. That God is giving you the life jacket And you can choose to cast it aside or put it on wrong. But I'm pleading with you today. This whole book has been about hearing. And if those standing at the foot of the mountain of Mount Sinai looking up and seeing the quake, hearing the quakes and seeing the lightning and all of those things, if if those people there chose not to listen, the only thing that you and I have in our path would lead to judgment. And none of us, none of us would want to be under that hand. In fact, if you go back to 2-3, remember the first warning? He said this, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is no escape. Now that's a heavy point. But as I begin to enter into this progressive uh, track toward reverence, the first thing I have to do is ask God to open these. You know, sometimes when I was, when I, when I was a hunter, you know, you, you know how like a, a deer and a fawn will make noises so that they know where each other is, right? And that fawn knows the, the call of the mom and the mom knows the call of the fa- fawn. I mean, they just know that because that's the mother. And God is calling to you. And my question to you today is this, why would you leave today unmoved by the voice of God? Why would you do that? The only thing I could think is your pride. My pride. If I choose to sit in my pride and say, nope, I got it all figured out, I can take care of myself, then you are signing up to stand in the path of what God's judgment will look like someday. That's a heavy truth, isn't it? But God is pleading with us all to listen. The second thing there, if I have listened... And I know the one who is speaking, the God of the universe who spoke this world in creation. You know how I should respond? Trembling. We tremble at the mighty voice of God. And it said in verse 26, and his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. How can he do that? Because he's the one that spoke it into creation to start with. And you know what? He doesn't like what it became and what it is. 
And sometimes I don't understand why God's timing is the way that it is. Sometimes it's frustrating, isn't it? Don't you, don't you wish that God would just come back right now and just eradicate sin and be done with it? It'd be nice, wouldn't it? But that's not God's plan. I can argue with God about his plan all I want. But humility says I tremble before his voice and I acknowledge and accept his plan, whether I agree with it or whether I fully understand it. I respond to it and I tremble. It said in Exodus 19, 19, when the sound of the trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. God answered him with thunder. Ladies and gentlemen, you got a lot of voices in your life, a lot of trumpets that are sounding. God's voice is louder than those trumpets. You're the one who chooses which one to listen to. You can listen to the trumpets or you can listen to him. Remember Elijah ran for his life and went up on a mountain and it said the winds came and the earthquakes came but then Elijah heard his still, small voice. Maybe for some of us today, we just need to get still and quiet long enough and ask the God of the universe to speak to us. Because I promise you, if you ask him to speak, he will. You remember the Wizard of Oz? Don't know, how many, most people in this room have, have seen the movie The Wizard of Oz, but of course my favorite character is the Cowardly Lion. And uh, they make it to Oz, and they all get dolled up, and the lion comes in, he's got his red bow on his head, and, and now it's time to go in and see Oz, and they know there's this terrible uh, presence, there's this throne room, so to speak, there's smoke billowing out, and as they're walking down the hall, all of a sudden he freaks out, he's like, somebody's pulling my tail. And somebody point, and one of the other ones said, you're pulling your own tail. He was so scared, he didn't even know who was pulling his tail. You know what? We're here, and we're standing. God is inviting us to this new mountain, and the only one holding us back from pressing into that presence is you. Because God has invited you to come through his son. When God calls you, you want his voice to shake you. There's things in my life that I need to have peeled away and broken down. And in fact, when you look at that verse again, in verse number 26, he makes a quotation out of the book of Haggai. He says, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. The book of Haggai was written to post-exilic. In other words, they had just returned from exile to Jerusalem. The walls are torn down and the temple is, in shat is, is shattered and through Haggai, he calls to the people and says, you know what, you're building your houses, when are you going to build mine? And so they set out through the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, who if you look at Matthew and Joseph's lineage, Zerubbabel was Joseph's ancestor. He was of Davidic lineage. And so now he's leading the people along with Joshua, the high priest, and he says this in the book, in chapter 2, For thus says the Lord of hosts, I will once again shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the nations, and I will fill this house with glory. How did that come about? Well, Zerubbabel is a type of Christ. Jesus Christ came to build that place that position where you and I could come to him. He shed his blood to take your sin away and make you right, to make you holy. You can't do that on your own. 
If you think you're going to earn your way to heaven, if you think you're going to earn your way to some sort of position of prestige, that's not the way God's economy works. He's inviting us to become less and Christ become more in our life. In fact, when you go into Zechariah, you hear this same kind of pronunciation to Zerubbabel when he says this to him. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who's rebuilding this temple, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I tremble. I tremble at the powerful word of God. And my question to you today is, is that you? I'm not telling you to be scared, so scared of God you won't come to him. I'm telling you when you come to God, you come with reverence. He speaks, I listen, I tremble, but here's this third thing. I yield to the sanctifying work of God. When we were in Nicaragua a few weeks ago, I was reminded about harvest of certain things. And, 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 and I, was, I think it was Steve, I can't remember who, who talked about this, but before sugarcane is harvested, they burn the fields. And I thought in my mind, I couldn't remember, I'm like, do they do that because the outside of the, of the, of the stem is so hard, like it's got to be burnt so you can get into the middle part where they get the sugar from? No, that's not why. They do it because if they don't, the leaves that are part of the plant fall off and they become so dry and brittle, they will combust and cause a problem. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I need to put our hand under the sanctifying hand of God to purge away the things in our life that can combust and cause us problems. You ever heard of the imagery of the chaff and wheat? God needs to remove the chaff from our heart so that our heart can be pure to hear his word and then act on what it is that God is speaking for us to do. If you look back in the chapter, in this chapter at verse 12, it says, therefore, listen to these commands, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. We think so selfishly, we think, well, that's my knees and that's my legs. No, he's saying, look beside you at the people that are running this race with you because you don't win if we don't all make it. We're running together, and I need to make sure the person beside me is running too. Listen to this. Make straight paths. Ladies and gentlemen, stop veering off the path at every voice you hear in this world and stay focused on Christ. He says to pursue peace with men. Stop being a jerk. That's my translation. Stop being a contentious person whose goal in life is to tick everybody off. Be at peace with all men because you'll win men much better with sugar than you will with salt. Listen to this though. This one gets real close. Pursue sanctification, being made holy. That's why I said you gotta yield to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He put the Spirit inside of you to cause you to obey His commands, but He's purifying you. And you can resist that process if you want, but you'll be miserable. But this last one, Listen to this, he says, see to it, or excuse me, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it people be defiled. In other words, if you're causing problems in the church, stop it. Stop being bitter. 
You need to learn some forgiveness. You may think you go to somebody and say, hey, let me tell you what so-and-so did the other day. I just, or this, somebody, so-and-so did this to me a year ago and I just can't get over it. I'm telling you right now, get over it. Because you know what it's doing? It's defiling the people around you. Why? Because again, the message of this book is about us, not me. We're in this together and there's enough grace inside of me because of what Jesus gave me to forgive the people around me. And you've got to make a conscious choice. You know what? It's time to move on from that. It's time to be restored and move on. Why? Because I need to yield to the sanctifying work of God. I'm going to fast forward to the last point right here. We worship in awe of the power of God. And again, I said it was progressive. We listen, we tremble, we yield, and that puts me in a place where I can worship in reverence and awe. We've only seen the word reverence one other time in the New Testament. In fact, it was just a few verses before. In chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of Christ's flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with, a loud, with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And check this out. And he was heard because of his reverence, his piety. The only two times it's used in the whole New Testament. But you know what? God's inviting us to, to, to offer our gratitude first. If I really see God for who he is, if I really understand the power of God and the wrath that I deserve, but then I look at the cross. I look at the cross and I, and I see that on that cross, the very Son of God came and bore the wrath of God that I deserve. Then there's only one response. I drop to my knees. I say, thank you. I give grace. It's funny because I was talking to my kids and sometimes I just talk about weird things. You ever listen to the way you bless your food? We come up with some really weird prayers when we bless our food. God's already blessed you with the food. You're just thanking him for it. That ought to be, you give grace. You give gratitude. And the other part of that is that you submit yourself to service, just like it says in Romans 12, 1. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And now, let, me, let me go a little bit further. Because when you lay down on the altar, your entire body, what is the goal of that sacrifice? To be consumed. Nothing left. Purged. Our God... Tell you, that's one of my favorite verses, is a consuming fire. I can choose to put my, myself on the altar in submission to the Lord and let the fire purify me. Or I can choose not to listen to the Lord and be under the weight and the wrath of that fire that will consume me. Which one do you want? Either one has fire. Because our God is a consuming fire. That consuming fire is not a negative thing. It's God saying, I need to purge and purify you. And what does that do? That changes the way I worship. Because when I come to worship, it's not about what songs I'm singing or who's sitting beside me or which translation. All that stuff doesn't matter when I walk into the presence of the Lord because all I want to do is thank God for the breath I have. I want to thank God for the people in my life. I want to thank God for the blessings he's given. I want to thank God that he spoke to me. 
Not that I'm trying to get everybody to live up to my legalistic expectation. I want to humble myself before a God who loved me enough that he bore my wrath. That changes the way that I worship. Listen to this. This is out of Exodus 19. He says, now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be mine among all the people. Because the earth is mine. Then he says this, and you shall be to me a kingdom. Again, this is, he says it in, in this verse we just read, and he said it in 1.8. We are a part of the kingdom of God, that kingdom that when God speaks someday, and those trumpets sound, the only thing that's going to be left is the eternal kingdom of God. Everything else will come, come down. Every, every political system, every country, everything will come down. As it's clear in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's coming. And so he says, later at the end of chapter 13, again, I wish I could just keep going for another year in this. In verse 15, he says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of, of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, because, oh, check this. For su with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The last time you heard the word pleased was in 11.6 where it said, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Reverence leads to worship. And I think we all need a good dosage of being reminded. Remember these warnings to pay attention. Pay attention to not doubt to don't come dull of hearing, but to step into maturity, to not go back to my sin. And now he's inviting me. He's inviting me, don't refuse him. Don't say no deal. Don't refuse to listen to the warning. He's saying, come on, and let's enter into a place where we show gratitude and we offer ourselves in service to him. And so I want you to stand with me. And we're gonna worship. I'm gonna quote Charles Stanley and maybe, maybe this speaks to you this morning because here's, here's what I think we all of us need today. Some of us in this room, we, we need to repent. We need to repent. We've come in here today and you go, like, hey, it's just another day in church, but God's inviting you to turn away. You've gotten off the path and he's wanting you to get back on the path. Some of us in this room today need to decide, I am going to forgive this person for what they did for me. I'm going to put it in the past under the blood of Jesus because I'm tired of it holding me back. But maybe like Charles Stanley said in a message, he said, before you come to God and you begin to complain and throw all your stuff in front of him, what if instead your prayer was this today? God, I'm going to sit in silence and ask you to speak to me and then actually sit there and listen. I believe God's got something he wants to say to you. And for those, all of us in the room, if you're online, you're in this room, I'm pleading with you. This has been an awesome study. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do not leave this room. Kevin will be up here. I'll be up here. Crosby will be up here. Steve Payson's over here. There's other leaders in this church that know how to help you understand the gospel. But it's on you to believe. There's no magic formula. There's no fairy dust. It's between you and the Lord. And he's calling you. Ask him to silence all the trumpets in your ears and listen for his voice.
And so God, as we worship today, as we stand and yield our lives to you, as we listen, as we step into that process that you have for all of our lives to sanctify us so that you can make us usable for your service, God, let us stand here today as we worship and let our hearts be full of thankfulness that God, that you can step in, change our lives and use us for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.